What is going on, people? Jose Nino here, your wonderful host of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined by one of my favorite geopolitical commentators. Tom Luongo is the publisher of Gold, Goats, and Guns. His work has been featured and reshared on Zero Hedge, Newsmax, and he's also made appearances on the Halsey News Network. How's your day going today, Tom? I'm good. It's been crazy, but it's, you know, like every other day, it's good. Uh, you know, as long as the, any day without nuclear war is a good day at this point. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, we're, we're in some crazy times. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's kind of where I am right now. Yeah. Before we dive into some of like the insanity taking place, could you tell my audience about your overall bio and what got you into studying economics and geopolitics? Sure. So I'm a chemist by trade, actually. I have a degree in chemistry from the University of Florida and a minor in British literature. And I did 25 years as a bench and research chemist. So I've got a, a mind steeped in real honest-to-God science and statistics and all of that. As I moved into middle age, I just didn't have any. You know, that, that was a career path that kind of warmed its way into a dead end. And I got into you know just studying economics and markets and political philosophy and all of this stuff. Well, right around the time of my conversion politically or religiously into libertarianism, right around uh, 2000 or so, that's when I fell in love with Lou Rockwell and the Mises Institute and all that stuff, trying to figure out what was going on in the world, why the markets crashed in 2000. And then just kind of took over my life. And uh, you know, from there, I just I became a, a guy that just kept teaching myself very much this whole thing. And, uh, you know, when my career as a chemist ended in 2011, I slowly warmed my way into making this my business. I began working with a guy over in Southeast Asia, a broker over there. I was doing a lot of ghostwriting for him, and we were doing financial reports for uh, his, some of his clients over there in, in Vietnam and around uh, Southeast Asia. So I spent a lot of time learning about markets from him. And, uh, you know, eventually I got picked up by Newsmax when I was writing about gold for Seeking Alpha. Uh, just trying to make ends meet. And I picked up by Newsmax and started editing a newsletter for them back then. It was uh, Gold Stock Advisor. Eventually, we rebranded that. And then when that gig ended, I decided to go independent and start Gold Goats and Guns and started blogging. But I had always blogged previous to that. I blogged you know, all throughout the, from my 2005 until you know, on and off. And the whole time I ran a, hell, I ran a hockey blog for a while. I used to write for AOL. So I've, I've been doing the the regular publication of writing in the public sphere for money since like 2008 on and off. So and it's just kind of where I wound up. And then over time, it just became very obvious to me that we don't live in free capital markets. The, the world that I would like to live in, the one that my, you know, my libertarian bona fides would allow for, uh, doesn't exist. We live in completely politicized markets. And we have to realize that the markets that you see today are completely fictionalized based on the political demands of the day. And that's what, ultimately drives a lot of my investment theses and a lot of my, for lack of a better term, you know, my, my take on global macroeconomics is very much focused on, you know, who said what, where, how, and why, and who's invading home and who's attacking home. And once you start to realize that's what actually drives markets on a day-to-day -day basis, then, you know, things become very, very clear after that. So in order to do that, you have to become an expert in monetary policy. You have to understand the Fed. You have to understand, at least in some ways, you know, the plumbing of the financial system and, and whatnot. I just, you know, the more you study, the more you learn, the better you get at it, and uh, the more you refine your models. And that's what I've been doing. I can definitely relate 
to lewrockwell.com because that's like the one site that really made me politically hardcore by religiously following in. I've been reading that blog, I'd say now for the better part of like 15 years or so. It's a great content and I strongly recommend my audience to go there mm-hmm. to read up on stuff because your material is generally posted there. So yeah, let's just start off with like the topic that everyone mm-hmm. is talking about, Russia, Ukraine. What are your initial thoughts about this conflict? And were you surprised that Russia ended up pulling the trigger by invading Ukraine? Um, I was. The second part of the question, I was actually surprised at the size and scope of the decision that Putin finally made. I really did think up until about 24 hours before the invasion, when I watched Putin's speech about his recognition of the Donbass as independent states, and I watched his body language, I've I've watched hundreds of hours of Vladimir Putin. I realized back in 2013, 2014, that he was by far the most pivotal figure in global politics for the 21st century. I came to that conclusion very, very quickly. Once I started truly thinking in terms of geopolitics, it became very clear to me. And this is, a, and this is what you know, good training from years of reading Lou Rockwell teaches you, and, which is that you need to be a root cause analysis kind of guy. So to me, Russia has been the pivotal state globally in the geopolitical architecture since the fall, well, honestly, since the Brits started trying to invade Afghanistan back in the 1870s, the more I realized this or whenever they, they first moved into Afghanistan. And this has been going on for 150 years. And, you know, my history on this is not, you know, it's hard won. It's not something that I've always known, or these are things that I've learned over time. I, I'm not a historian by trade. To me, watching this play out, when I watched Putin's body language and he was as viscerally angry as he was in that uh, announcement, I got very scared because I really did think up until that moment, I've written volumes on this, thinking, and I'm I'm not the only one who got it wrong. I think everybody got it wrong. I got it wrong too. (laughs) The whole thing was going to land just this side of conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's not hard to, there's no shame in it. Everybody got it wrong. I think I think everybody thought it was going to land just this side of open warfare, but still remain in the realm of realpolitik and still, you know, fall in the, the realm of, oh, well, we're all virtue signaling about what we're going to do, but no one's actually going to start. No, tanks aren't going to cross borders, but we're going to make it look like tanks are going to cross borders and blah, 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 blah. When the reality was, is that Things were far worse behind the scenes than anyone wanted to let on. We had just become so used to everybody kind of virtue signaling and overstating their case and and everything else and just become so cynical about the Diplo speak, for lack of a better term, coming out of everybody that, you know, it's "Ah, it's just not going to happen. And we did what markets always do, which is to, to assume cooler heads will prevail and things aren't as bad as they want to write in the headlines. Well, guess what? Things were worse. And the more I dig into this conflict, the more I see the information that's coming out and the way the mis-slash-disinformation campaigns on both sides is playing itself out. It's very clear to me that the Russians had a laundry list far beyond what they originally said were their grievances, the laundry list of grievances against not only Ukraine, but the United States and the European Union that culminated in them, well, if they're going to move in to try and secure the Donbass, the, you know, the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, 
that it was going to be necessary for them to decapitate, demilitarize, and as Putin put it, denazify all of Ukraine. And once you make that your operational goal, I think the Saker had a great, Saker's latest, greatest, uh, latest post on this, which is we're doing this on the 10th of March. So it's his post that he just put up this morning on this. Big rambling post by him, but because he got it wrong too. He said, once Putin made that decision, there was no other path than for them to go all out. And I think it caught everyone completely flat-footed. I think it caught the State Department flat-footed. I think it caught the the European Union flat-footed, NATO, everyone. No one thought he was going to do this, which is why they're so angry with him. Because it was the one move, the one strategic move he could make that not only decapitates Ukraine, but calls into question and actually threatens the entire global or globalist or Davos crowd architecture, not only in the US, but within Europe, because it does fundamentally cast open all of the narratives that they've been promulgating. And when, as we start to see them push out information about what's been going on in Ukraine, the bio labs, the the mass graves of, of dead Russians, ethnic Russians by the Azov Battalion, the, the, now the blocking of humanitarian corridors and using people as human shields and all of this stuff in Mariupol. And like when you watch this play itself out, for those who have eyes who are willing to see, and, those, and that group of people is growing daily, now that they've gotten over the initial shock and awe of the uh, original propaganda campaign against the Russians, we begin to see, wow, maybe they have a point. And Putin's really not Hitler. That's dangerous for them. And they know that they had to go, because everybody's been looking at this propaganda campaign going, this is crazy. Like, this is not, this is insane. I mean, yeah, Putin's wrong for invading another country, but he had to have had a good reason because he's never been that guy before. So now what's going on? And um, the lack of, of response from everybody who's not within the EU, UK, American architecture. Everybody else is like, yeah, well, you know. Fafo, baby, you know, you, uh, <laughs> you you poke the Russian bear and they're angry and they've got, and we're not going to back you on this. Like, it's just that simple. I just, that's the way, you know, you can see it from China, from India, from the Saudis to even to a lesser extent, even Japan. Like, like everybody's going, no, we're not going to cut off trade. Even the EU is now backing off on the idea that they're going to cut off energy trade with the Russians. So it's all kind of falling apart, you know, a narrative sense very, very quickly. And so that's why the narrative has to become even more histrionic. So we'll see. Big time. I do see what we're going through as like a major shift. And it does show that Russia now is very much willing to use like the monopoly of violence to reassert itself on the geopolitical stage after being poked so much for like the past 30 years. You can't really look at these events like something that happened like just like two weeks ago. It's part of like a decades-long process that has finally manifested itself in violent form now. So, yeah, like, the overall coverage of this event, though, is is just, like, almost, like, farcical because, like, when you just, like, tune in to the idiot box, you'll see, like, people, so-called experts from, like, CNN to Fox News who are clearly stuck in this, like, 20th century geopolitical time warp. And, like, it's most evident when they constantly use like World War II analogies, like like you said, like Hitler or like the Cold War analogies in this case of like Fox. Hmm. From like your perspective, looking at it like from the big picture, what do you think caused this conflict to to explode effectively? Uh, 
I'll be honest, if you can believe half of what the Russians have told us so far, which is fair, because I mean, you know, they're not nearly as sophisticated with their disinformation as we are. So they usually wind up having to tell a lot more of the truth in order to try and, you know, sway opinion to their side. If they're telling any amount of truth coming out of the Russian Ministry of Defense or the Foreign Ministry, they were going to get invaded anyway. That there were plans on the table for a massive Ukrainian attack on the Donbass in a couple of days before he moved in, or a couple of days after he moved in. So Putin has said very clearly that when you know a fight is inevitable, you got to strike first. So, you know, I've, I've seen reports and readouts from TASS and from the Kremlin saying, look, we have it on very good authority, and here's the, here are the documents that you can argue about the veracity of these documents, that the Ukrainian army was going to attack the Donbass in, en masse on the 25th of February. So we attacked on the 24th and decapitated them. It could have been that. They also say they had intelligence that the Americans were smuggling, trying to smuggle nuclear weapons into, into the Ukrainian army battalions. That's bad. We also know that, you know, I don't know that I believe that, but it's there. We know that the, at the Munich Security Conference, the vice president of the United States said it's time to add Ukraine to NATO. I know that was a red line for the Russians. At the Munich Security Conference as well, they were talking, Zelensky said he was going to pursue nuclear weapons, which is in direct contravention of the 1994 Budapest Agreement. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, this is insane. I, and you think that at some point, like, oh, the Russians aren't allowed to strike back until we've already launched the first strike against Moscow? Oh, then they're going to be morally justified? Like, all the libertarians in the audience that are, like, having the vapors over Russia striking first, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm done. I don't, I'm not, I'm not listening to that. I got news for you, dude. If, if Antifa were to show up at my house after I got doxxed, right? I got news for you. Guess what? They showed up on my property. I'm walking outside with a gun in my hand. Like, it's that simple. I'm going to give them two warnings, and then I'm going to stick my dogs on them, and then I'm going to start, you know, and then I'm going to point weapons at them. Done. Like, I'm not going to sit there and let Antifa or, or somebody violate my property, and then I have to wait until they're, you know, I'm going to say, no, I'm in the fear for my life. That's it. We're done. Let's let's go. Do you want to do you want to feel froggy? Let's take that leap. This is exactly the situation we push the Russians into. It's no different. Like, what, do we have to wait until somebody actually shoots at you before you shoot back? This isn't New York. I, you know, I don't live in New York. I live in Florida. I, I got Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground and all this stuff down here. I don't have a duty to retreat off my property. The, the way the, the Western press is, is trying to frame this is that Russia has a duty to retreat from their own country. Like, no, you don't. You have the right to self-defense, period. Yeah. And sometimes that means going first. It's just that simple. And sometimes it means allowing your opponent to overextend themselves, thinking that they have operational tempo. And then we're quickly reversing them, which is exactly what Putin just did. Because, well, he's an eighth don in judo, and he understands this stuff. And he's always done this. He did this to Obama in Syria in 2013, okay? He waited until Obama overextended himself. The Brits refused to help with the invasion. And then he was able to, you know, negotiate a settlement with Assad over his chemical weapons. His, re his reward for stopping a U.S. invasion of Syria was the overthrow of Yanukovych in Ukraine four months later. And then, you know, he had to take Crimea. And then we ratcheted up ISIS. And then we, and then we created ISIS in Syria. And then by the end of 2015, he had to move the Russian Air Force into Syria and say, that's enough. You don't get to take over Syria. You don't get to, you know, topple the Assad regime because um, you got your panties in the snit. Like, it's not happening. No, stop. That's it. We're done. And um, Putin's involvement in Syria is really much of the impetus for this because Syria was absolutely something that 
the neoconservatives on the right in the United States and the neoliberals in Europe, the neoliberal interventionists in Europe and on in the Democratic Party, were both in agreement on. Syria is to be destroyed, to undermine Russian security. And uh, that's that. And they create a failed state on the, you know, on the border with Turkey and then to start threatening the Caucasus and then start threatening, you know, Iraq and Iran and and then up into Kazakhstan and the rest of it and into the Caspian region. That's what they were planning on doing. Yeah. It's like, it's not like, this is not even like conspiracy theory. This is like stated policy of these people, be it PNAC or DOD documents or any of this stuff. I'm not like, you know, this is not weird. This is not, this is not conspiracy theory, guys. This is like stated policy of the United States. Today, everybody who's screaming about how terrible the Russian intervention is in Ukraine are all the people who are the most dirty are the dirtiest in Ukraine, the Hillary Clintons and the Joe Bidens and the John Kerry's and the Mitt Romney's and the Nancy Pelosi's and the Adam Schiff's. You can go look all this stuff up. They all have they all have sons and daughters who are sitting on the boards of Ukrainian energy companies. We've got, you know, you, you don't believe the bioweapons lab argument? Well, guess what? There's a bioweapons lab funded by the United States with Dick Luger's name on it in Odessa. Like, Barack Obama was, we have pictures of Barack Obama, like, you know, doing the groundbreaking ceremony in Ukraine in, in 2005 when he was a senator. Like, they've been planning this stuff for years. So we're going to find out when this is all over just how dirty we are in Ukraine. And I think it's going to shock even you and I, okay? And I have a very low opinion of these people. And I think the reality is going to shock everybody to their core. It will be interesting to see how that plays out, which is why the Ukrainians have not surrendered yet. They're not allowed to surrender. Yeah, they're fighting to the last Ukrainian. That's like the like the goal these people want. And actually, I, I like your point about bringing in Syria into the mix because this also goes back to like root cause stuff. You saw this stuff in the 90s with like the CIA basically mm-hmm. funding a lot of radical Islamists in the Balkans and also in Chechnya as well because like by toppling Syria you effectively create this Sunni jihadist pipeline that also benefits as well Israel too, because they've always had the Yunnan plan where they want to like create as many failed states or scenarios where you have bait and bleed between Arab countries so that like they're all fighting amongst themselves and and Israel just sits like comfortably not having to worry about like an existential like coalition of countries going against it. So there's like a lot of interests where they're, they come together. You have like the neoliberals, neocons, the typical like garden variety, like Zionist lobby that benefits from all this. And yeah, a lot of this, like, it's just a screw with Russia. You also saw with Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. like the Muslim Brotherhood apparently had their hands in some of the, some of those protests that Russia and the CSTO cracked down. But yeah, like a lot of this stuff is like very interconnected and you can definitely see mm-hmm. the the signs of like a lot of like geopolitical maneuvering going in the background that dates back to the 90s. This didn't happen just like last month, like some people would like you to believe on the media. Oh, without, without a doubt. I can add a little bit of color to that. It's, it's really obvious that, for example, Kazakhstan was, a, was an intelligence operation that went bad. The Russians had already understood what was going to happen. They responded so quickly. It was so clear that they understood that Nazarbayev and was going to be activated to have the army stand down while we, while all those Islamists, head salafists, head chopping animals, is the way I like to put it, <laughs> um, were allowed to leave Raqqa after we destroyed Raqqa in, in Syria. They were all allowed to, to leave um, in their Toyota Tacomas 
and funnel south into Iraq. And eventually they show up in Kazakhstan because the same type of operations were being run against the Kazakh police force while the, well, Nazarbayev, the former ruler of Kazakhstan, had control of the Security Council, which means he had control of the military and the military stood down on his order, right? A lot of the tactics that were used, the chopping of hip, you know, the unbelievable violence against the police officers, like isolating them, chopping their heads off, the whole nine yards, this went on, okay? Very reminiscent of what happened when we reactivated them against Assad in Syria. And it was at that point that, that Putin uh, intervened in Syria, all right? Now, Kazakhstan was very clearly an operation that the Russians understood was coming and just waited for that to happen. And they said, oh, good, a twofer. We can shore up Kazakhstan by getting rid of Nazarbayev because Tokayev moved against the sitting ruler, moved against Nazarbayev, removed him from the Security Council, which then immediately brought the military in. The Russians had already begun moving their mobilizing their troops that landed at the Almaty airport so that the airports could not be taken. That was very important. It was very touch and go, by the way, but they were, you know, they, they headed these guys off by a matter of hours, from what I understand, and then, you know, killed them all. And so here's the twofer. We get to shore up Kazakhstan and we get to kill all the ISIS that the United States, you know, let loose from Raqqa. Yay. Same thing with part of the reason why they went into Syria. All the guys who, from Chechnya, who evaded the Russian capture during the, the Chechen, Second Chechen War, where Kadyrov, the elder Kadyrov, eventually ceded Grozny to Russia and finally eventually knuckled under. All those guys wound up in Syria fighting against them there. And again, Syria was a twofer for Putin. Oh, I get to kill Islamists in Syria and I get to kill some of the Chechens who got away from me the first time. Oh, winner. I mean, that's a that's a winner, winner, chicken dinner. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that if you're if you're Putin. And so you've you've got to realize that this is some of the stuff that's going on here. And it's very clear that Russia just has better human intelligence on the ground in all of these places. And um, that includes, so this is part of the reason why I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on the information coming out of, that's now coming out of Ukraine. Because it's very clear that they have better human intelligence in the hotspots close to their border than we think they do. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been surprised by this invasion and the scope of it. And, you know, they would have never countered the Kazakh situation as quickly as they did, or the Belarusian one in 2020, or even Nagorno-Karabakh in Armenia yeah. in 2021. No, yeah, a lot of this stuff is like really like big. Yeah, the stuff you mentioned about Nagorno-Karabakh is also pretty interesting because that's like really fallen by the wayside. It actually looks like a, like a esoteric, like geopolitical conflict that mm-hmm. only us like nerds would be like talking about, but it, it is like interconnected in many respects. But I just want to get your thoughts on this. How do you see the geopolitical landscape changing once the dust settles from the Russo-Ukrainian conflict? It depends on how it ends, if it ends. You know that the neocons never like to waste an asset, meaning every hotspot that's been a hotspot in the past is never settled. It's always just wound down to some level of kind of detente, low-level conflict. It always can be spun up at a moment's notice and something else. Why did John Bolton scuttle peace talks when Donald Trump had done all that work to get the Vietnam summit together with North Korea to have John Bolton walk in and destroy it in 20 minutes because they didn't want a resolution to North Korea? Okay, this is not even a matter of whether they got would have gotten what they wanted in North Korea. What they want is to have North Korea be a potential boogeyman. Same thing in Ukraine, 
Same thing in Syria, same thing in Iraq, same thing in well, up until recently Afghanistan. You, you never leave because you can always dump $5 billion worth of weapons in, you know, covertly and then, you know, try and bribe some people and spin up another conflict and then create a war in, in the headlines, right? So it depends. Putin and his staff are making it abundantly clear that they are going to go for the jugular and they are going to go for a definitive end to this. Now, officially, Zelensky will never surrender. And the reason that Zelensky will never surrender, as I alluded to earlier, is because if he surrenders, then Ukraine ceases to function as a state because it's surrendered to the Russians. Now we have terms of surrender. And when you have terms of surrender, you have the conflict is not settled in international law. Then we can start talking about who's responsible for what damages. And that means we get into the lawyers and this becomes a lawsuit. And guess what? They never like to see in any lawsuit against them, these people. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be as, as simple as Hunter Biden's laptop, you know, some information on Hunter Biden's laptop or Hillary Clinton's emails or, you know, something as minor as, you know, some market that Goldman Sachs tried to rig three years ago. What do they never do? They never fight it. They settle it out of court and they never go to discovery. Why do they never go to discovery? Because no one ever wants any of their malfeasance entered into evidence. They never want the light shined on the malfeasance. They don't want, ever want anybody to present evidence against them. So why won't, why will Zelensky not surrender? Because if he does, then the Russians can then in an, an official international fora present, either at the UN or the Hague or whatever, present all of their information which will show definitively that Ukraine was intimately involved in helping Hillary Clinton spy on Donald Trump. That'll be all the things that we know to be true and all of the stuff that we think is true, but now we can get proof of it. I think all that stuff comes out in the wash. I think every bit of it comes out. And then all of a sudden, people are going to have to sit there knowing and having had presented to them this information. And then once you have information in front of you, you have to do one of two things with it. You have to either ignore it or you have to accept the responsibility of the information. So we live in a world where people want to remain ignorant on purpose so that they never have to face the responsibility of the information that's been presented to them. How many times have you tried to argue with somebody about, you know, what's going on in Ukraine or COVID or pick a pick a topic and you get to you're arguing with your friends, or your family, whomever, and they're like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah, you don't want to hear it because if you hear it, then you actually have to feel honor bound to do something about it because you think you're a good person. But if you're if you decide that you hear this information and you don't act on it, then you know you're a bad person. So you just say, I don't want to hear it anymore. Ah, this is this is the power of information. And so you have to realize that that's part of what they play on. And so at this point, that's what we're dealing with. And I want to see it all come out in the wash, good, bad, or indifferent. I want to see it all because, you know, that's how humanity moves forward. The truth is always better than the lie. The truth sells itself and the lies are expensive to maintain. Well, how expensive are these lies going to be to maintain? Well, right now they're fighting a war in Ukraine over. Is it going to go to the level of nuclear weapons? I certainly hope not. But I know well that Putin is prepared to use them if necessary because he's fighting for Russia's survival. And that scares me. And it scares me not because he's willing to use it, but because there are people in Washington who don't believe that he's willing to use it, who think he's bluffing still to this day. And he hasn't bluffed yet. In 23 years in power, 22 years in power, he hasn't bluffed yet. He's delayed action. He's never bluffed. So again, to answer your question, depends. Will we get an actual honest to God surrender? If so, everything changes. 
because now the world will have to be responsible for the information the Russians present in such a way that they'll have to act on it. But what we'll more likely see is the attempt, the the ham-fisted and crude attempt to keep them from ever being able to do that and then eventually kick them out of, try and kick them out of the UN and everything and all the other structures so they can never present this information officially in the West. Whereas everybody else who's not, every country that's not condemning them today over this war, they've already been presented all this information. They already know it all. The Chinese, the Indians, the Turks, the even the Israelis know all of this stuff. Notice how Israel isn't even yelling it about the Russians. Israel abstained in condemning them for their invasion of Ukraine the other day. Saudis, like the whole of OPEC plus, the whole, what Pepe Escobar calls the whole global South. They know what's going on. Lavrov, Lavrov's got all of their foreign ministers on speed dial. Putin's visited with all of these people in the last couple of years, cut trade deals with them and all sorts of stuff. You don't think that they've had these discussions about just how terrible they've been treated? Almost every one of these countries has been treated by the United States and their satellites in the last five years, seven years. I mean, Trump tried to uh, tried to reverse some of this, but then again, he turned around and you know stabbed most of these countries in the back as well, thinking that you know his idea of big leverage, big stick is uh, is, uh, is good foreign policy. I'm like, no, dude, it's it's, it's only good when you're trying to negotiate a uh, a hotel deal. It doesn't work in geopolitics. The wrong kind of negotiating tactic. So this is where we are. It's a mess. Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned the global South thing because that's one of the biggest geopolitical realignments that we're seeing right now because it's crazy when you see Pakistan and India on the same page when it comes to to Russia, like an issue like Russia, like all of like South Asia practically is on the same boat and also all these other countries. Like, yeah, even Israel too, because there are like factions of like the Israeli right that are much more how would you put it like oriental when it comes to like how they view countries like Russia and China, they're not as hostile. And I'd I'd actually venture to say that Israel, if you want to consider it like a Western nation, which is highly debatable, but it has like the most normal relations with Russia when it comes to like sanctions Mm -hmm. and all of that since like 2014. But let's shift gears a bit to the domestic politics with rising energy costs and like a sluggish economy. What do you think the Fed's going to do in the next few months? The Fed is definitely going to raise rates by at least 25 basis points next week. With the ECB coming out this morning, and we're doing this on uh, Thursday, March 10th, uh, the ECB came out this morning with a very hawkish statement that they're going to end QE faster and they may even allow rates to rise. And we saw uh, European bond yields like rise sharply this morning. There's now a bigger percentage chance that the Fed will hike by 50 basis points because I do believe fundamentally, and this is going to be hard to do quickly because I know we don't have a lot of time left. I firmly believe that the Fed and the Biden administration are not seeing eye to eye. Uh, I think it's very clear that they don't talk to each other much. Powell as much said the other day that they did not consult with him at all before they put all these sanctions on. That seems odd that they took all their cues from Janie Yellen, who's a Davos troll through and through. So the Fed is going to continue to roll off its balance sheet. It's going to raise interest rates. It may only raise a quarter of a point, but then we may see an emergency rate hike between now and June. They may go 50 basis points in next week. Either way, they're going to tighten and they're going to tighten faster than the ECB. What the ECB is trying to do now is trying to get ahead of this idea that, oh, no, no, we're, we're, we're going to be responsible and we're going to allow you to get out from underneath these COVID restrictions or those are virtue signaling to their people. But they're, and they're also going to continue to buy Russian energy, if you noticed, whereas we're not. So 
the domestic policy front until the Biden junta is overthrown or removed from office is going to be terrible because they are going to go complete scorched earth. Pelosi last night at 2.30 in the morning got the House to pass a $1.65 trillion spending bill that just, they, she whipped up out of nowhere. Where did this come from? Not that it has a, a prayer in passing through the Senate, but she wanted to at least try. Maybe under this environment where they're going to pledge $18 billion or nine or whatever it is, $16 billion worth of support to Ukraine, which is just a slush fund for her and her cronies. I don't know. Maybe she thinks that that's going to be you know, headline enough to shame President Manchin and you know Vice President Cinema into voting for it, because those guys basically run the country at this point, other than through executive order from Biden, because the Biden can't get anything done other than through executive order. So I don't know. Uh, the domestic policy front's a mess until we are willing to signal to the markets that we're going to get the fiscal our fiscal house in order. And that means getting rid of pretty much the Democratic Party, at least neutering it as a going political concern for the next generation. And we'll see how that plays out in the midterms. Because if Manchin and Sinema can hold the Senate together and pass no new fending bills between now and the midterm, and we see a whole bunch of, you know, Trump tard style, Ron Paul style fiscal conservatives run for all of these newly vacant seats because there's 31 members of the House that are not going to run for re-election, a lot of whom are committee chairmen and committee members, big, big people. And the Republicans take 70 to 80 seat majority in the House. The political wins on Capitol Hill will be such that everything is potentially on the table to reverse the election from 2020. In de facto, not to reinstate Trump is not it's like overthrow Biden, you know, overthrow the election, but to basically impeach Biden, arrest Harris for both of them for being basically traitors to the Republic, and then installing the new Speaker of the House as president, who may or may not be Donald Trump, because anybody can be Speaker of the House, by the way. We'll see. I don't know that. I mean, that's a it's a low order of probability, but if it if things go as badly for the uh, the Biden administrations. I expect them to go for the next six months. And Davos is in complete scorched earth, liquidate the United States as quickly as possible mode, meaning they're going to just do everything imaginable to make things as miserable for us as possible. Thinking that maybe during, you know, advanced war with Russia in some weird sense that they can cancel the elections, which not going to happen, then uh, they're going to lose everything. The Democrats are going to get destroyed. And uh, there's an a window opens up to support the Federal Reserve tightening global liquidity of and global liquidity in dollars, squeezing out Europe, forcing liquidation, capital liquidations all over Europe. All that capital will flee over here. And if we decide to get our fiscal house in order, at least signal that we're willing to do so with a, with a very, very strong Congress, um, it could get very interesting here in the United States. What's more likely to happen is just a whole lot of infighting. But I'll take that. Honestly, but it's too late for that. If we get that, then we're looking at, you know, 12 to 15 percent inflation, six thousand dollar gold. Like there's so many things that just go crazy from there. So I'm hoping actually that cooler heads don't prevail here in the US, that the baseline scenarios don't come to pass, that the more dramatic ones do come to pass. Everybody does look up and go, This is bad. There are vandals running our country and for not for our benefit, but for Europe's. Europe is not the victim here, they are the instigator. And uh, it's time to, you know, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get back to work and stop, you know, and stop listening to the people who've got masks on their faces and, you know, their heads up each other's asses, practically. So that's what needs to be done. We'll, hope, I, we'll see if it happens. I don't know. But it's not my baseline prediction, but it's the one I want. It's my hope, most hopeful one. 
there's definitely a lot of moving parts and we don't know what the future is going to look like, but there's definitely, I believe, like an economic realignment, if you will, because there's like a bifurcation of sorts that is deglobalized in nature, basically an East versus West dynamic. And that's going to have a huge impact on the U.S.'s wealth. And we're not um, economic health, moreover. But we're not just talking about like GDP or job numbers, but also like the dollar status as like the reserve currency. Where do you see the dollar going in the next decade or so? Well, over the next decade, it's definitely going lower. In the first couple of years, though, it's definitely going higher. Mm. This is the part that people don't want to... It's, it's, it's hard. It's easy to go, oh, hey, well, you know, that's just, everything's going to go in a straight line. It doesn't work that way. Everything, there's an order of operations to things. You have to look at the game board and go, who's the weakest player at the table? Is it the United States? Is Biden doing everything imaginable or Obama, Susan Rice, Biden, Davos, whatever, doing everything imaginable to make the U.S. weak? Absolutely. Are they going to succeed? Open question. Is it still going to be enough to make the United States less weak than Europe? Please don't make me laugh. Okay. The Russians are only going to get stronger from here. So we're going to get a... uh, we're going to get a global realignment. There's definitely going to be regional reserve currencies. Capital is going to flow out of the West and into the East. Davos is trying to make it such that the United States is, the United States advantages in capital handling are normalized with the rest of Europe and then destroy us from within, which is what they're doing. And then hope that that's enough to take the combined capital of those two places and then use them as leverage and throw them at Russia and China along with our what's left of our military. Um, I don't think that plan succeeds at all. But that's definitely the plan. What, we're, what, what happens actually is that they take their best shot at it and they cause a whole lot, bunch of havoc and they destroy the lives of a whole lot of people, possibly even entire generations of Americans and four generations of Europeans, if not more. While Martin Armstrong's predictions of capital flowing eventually to China within the next decade, and China becoming the the center of the world, uh, come true. And I think that Marty's not wrong in in that prediction. I know he's using his computer, Socrates, to do that, and that's fine. But you can see the, 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 the guts of that laying out right here, right now. So, but in the short run, the world is still biblically short dollars. Don't ever forget that. All those treasuries that are held overseas, the world is, and the corporate debt and everything else, and all the corporate debt that's out there that's denominated in dollars, the world is still biblically short dollars. And while you know, the commodity trade is going to become, is going to get shifted away from the big, uh, away from the dollar, not be so monolithic. The M0 of the world, which is the trade for global, basically global commodities. It's not going to be dominated in dollars the way it has been for the last, you know, say, 50 years, most of my lifetime. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a conversation, and that's going to happen. And that's going to cause long-term structural inflation here at home as those dollars need to be repatriated in some way. But again, if the United States also is willing to go through real, honest-to-God fiscal austerity, along with regulatory regulatory austerity meaning you do what uh, what an austrian would would recommend here you cut spending you cut entitlements and you cut regulations and you cut taxes you cut it all what do you ever hear out of these you know imf trained technocratic i can't come up with a word that's not 
you know, that's not invective. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like, I, I, I want to use something, you know, vulgar for these people. But that are these technical. Uh, what do you always hear from them? You always hear we have to cut spending and we have to cut spending and raise taxes. This is the worst possible form of austerity you could you could put place on a population. What you want to do is you want to cut it all. Okay. And you want to strengthen the 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 domestic economy by cutting government spending and realizing that government spending is not real GDP. It's fake GDP because it's not productive capacity. It's really inefficient production at best. Okay. And you want to unlock creativity. You want to unlock dynamism. You want to attract foreign capital. And you do that by cutting spending, cutting regulations, cutting taxes. Okay. You'll never hear that out of these, you know, out of these IMF technocrats, these EU, you know, commies, basically. You never hear that from these people. They always say the same thing. Oh, no, we got to raise taxes. Raising taxes is good for growth. Yeah, stealing from people is really good for, uh, for, for people's time preference. To put it in Austrian terms, yeah, you're going to steal from me? I'm just going to spend the money today. I'm not going to invest it in the future. I'm not going to build anything with it. I'm not going to engage in low time preference behavior like, I don't know, building a house. No, I'm going to live in my car and eat Starbucks I mean, and go, you know, and eat Wendy's and go to Starbucks and, you know, and I don't know, tune in, turn out and drop dead. I, I just, I, these, I, it, their understanding of human behavior is so poor that it's just, it, it, it beggars belief. And they've convinced an entire two generations of, of Americans and, and, and Europeans and thinking this is right. I'm like, why? Oh, because are, are you, is it just the soybeans or, you know, is it the soy milk? Really? Okay, that's fine. That's what you believe. That's fine. I'm not going to live through that, thankfully. Well, I'm going to live through the last. I'm going to live through the first part of it, but I, I ain't participating. So and if you come on my property, prepare for the worst. So I don't know. It's just this, this whole thing is just uh, like, it's just silly. So the United States has this opportunity in front of them to not avoid all of this, but to avoid the worst of it. And then... We can muddle through. We have a lot of capital here left in the United States. We have a lot of entrepreneurial spirit left. We have a lot of resources left. What we have to get rid of is a parasitic um, oligarch and parasitic political class who've gone full commie. And sorry to the commies in the audience, but I'm reductionist about this. It comes down to it. There's very few things I'm very reductionist about, but as far as like, you know, economic theory is concerned, Frankly, you're either a libertarian or you're a freaking commie. I, I just don't, I'm just not playing games with collect. Communism is the end state of all for, forms of collectivism because it's the mindset. Communism is, you know, Marx didn't invent communism. All he did was describe accurately what collectivism is at its endgame state and called it communism. See, it's not like, you know, but every, and everybody who tries to, oh, no, it's democratic socialism or it's fascism or it's this or it's that. I'm like, no, no, no. That's what commies do. They try to like create euphemisms to get around what they actually want to do. They always play word games and definitional games. Like, so we're going to have that conversation? Fine. No, you're just a commie. Shut up. That's not so bad. Yes, it is. It's terrible. 200 million, 50 million dead people in the 20th century. Shut up. Unbelievable. Just unreal that I have to like, we have to defend communism today for millennials. It's just dumb. It's just dumb. Yeah, it's really a sad state of affairs when you think about it. And it's pretty much a harbinger of the clown world stuff that's going to be unfolding in the next 
few decades credits. So I tell people to buckle up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. You know, and the gold, goats, and guns investment ethos is that buckle up, base commodities, crypto, cash, cash equivalents, land. Well, man, I thought this conversation was great. So before we bounce, Tom, where can my listeners follow your work? Sure. You can follow me over at my blog at tomluongo.me. Uh, you can just search for gold, goats, and guns. You'll find me. Uh, I also run a Patreon where I, uh, I, a lot of what you see on the blog is not what I mostly produce, right? Um, I, I produce an awful lot for my patrons beyond the paywall. I do um, private blog posts and private podcasts and market reports where I go over technical state of important markets like gold, silver, the Dow, cryptos, Bitcoin, yada, yada, yada. Um, along with bespoke research, if anybody asks me to go over a particular market, I will. That's technical analysis along with long-term structural analysis. Um, and that's a Patreon slash gold goats and guns. And we produce a monthly investment newsletter to support all of that work as a, you know, kind of wrap up investment thesis as to this is, these are the types of stocks you want to, and maybe look at these companies to invest and, and build your portfolio around. And then, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at TFL1728. Great stuff, man. So to all my listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, El Nino has spoken.